Our Father in heaven, you are our creator God. We are created. We realize that we've come from the dust of the ground. And in fact, without you sustaining our lives, we'd be nothing but dust. So Father, we ask for a humiliation today. Humble us and help us to recognize that even the act of creation, the week of creation, is something we have to accept by faith. Father, help us to see the order and the perfection in the way you created. Bless us now with the presence of the Holy Spirit, for we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone have a good lunch? This is a very unique room. I almost wish I could clone myself and put myself over there and me here at the same time. Um, I apologize. I'm going to probably be focusing a lot more attention over here, but I will try to look at you every so often, okay? I guess we could, but since the monitor is not working. If you will, turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 22, verse 5. Genesis chapter 22, verse 5. No. That's not me. It is pretty. <laughs> Genesis chapter 22, verse 5. This is the story of Abraham going to Mount Moriah with his son, a donkey, two male servants, some wood, and a bowl of fire. Is my mic cutting in and out? Yeah. Is this better? Well, we'll see how. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 5, the Bible says, And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with a donkey. I and the boy will go over there and, what's the next word? Worship, worship, and come again to you. Now, Abraham is a very interesting person. In fact, the whole book of Genesis, in the Genesis narrative, there is more space devoted to talk about Abraham than any other Bible character in the book of Genesis. Genesis uh, Abraham is referred to in the New Testament as the friend of God. Also, you will find Abraham's name twice in in Hebrews, the faith chapter. Let's try it. Yeah, let me 
do this. We might have to start all over and have prayer all over again. <laughs> there it is. Wonderful. All right. Did you guys see the two that cop popped up? All right. Oh, I know what's going on. The monitor is lying to me. The projector says it can display it in a very high resolution, but in fact it probably can't, which is why it's doing that. All right, let's go one step lower. Okay. Praise God. <laughs> but it is a short cable, isn't it? <laughs> you know what? Even f maybe for the next one, we'll try the longer one again, except with the 800 by 600 resolution. Um, I think that was the issue. Okay. This morning we talked about... God the creator and we realized and we understood that again I'm cutting in and out aren't I it's not me we realize that the name of this creator God is Jehovah, Jehovah. and Jehovah means self-existent one okay now what does it mean to self-exist Okay, what did you guys just have? Hopefully a delicious one. Lunch, right? Why do you need to eat? To sustain life. It's telling us that our life has to come out, come from outside of us. It's the same thing with the water we drink, and it's the same thing with the air that we breathe. Those are constant reminders that we consist, all things consist in Christ. Ellen White, I believe, and I'm paraphrasing here, so if I'm wrong, you know, don't blame her, blame me. Uh, I believe there is a place where she talks about how every single crumb of food is only possible because of what took place on the cross for you and me. Amen. Now, we were talking about Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, verse 5, and there we see a picture of Abraham with his son, Isaac, and the two male servants, and the donkey, the wood, and the fire, and they're going to Mount Moriah to do what? Have a sacrifice. Who is the sacrifice? Isaac. What do you do to sacrifices? Wait, the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not kill. It's cremation. It's cremation. <laughs> the end result is the same, my friend. Isn't that a bizarre command from God? Sister White tells us in Patriarchs and Prophets that he knew it was the voice of God. But he was questioning whether... He was questioning the logic behind God's command. In other words, Abraham was so in tune 
with God's voice, he could recognize it. In fact, the incidences that take place here in Genesis 22, about 15 years have passed, 15 to 17 years have passed uh, since the last time there was any direct communication from God to Abraham. And yet, Abraham, when he heard the voice of God, he still recognized it. The question I have for you today is, are you so in tune with the shepherd's voice? What did Jesus say? He said, my sheep hear my voice. Are you listening to the voice of Jesus every day? Well, listen to how he speaks here. He says, stay here with a donkey to the young uh, male servants. And then in the English, it says, I and the boy will go over there, worship come again to you. Right? It seems simple. It seems innocuous enough. It almost seems like a misrepresentation, doesn't it? You know what it actually says in the Hebrew construction? It says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over. I and the boy will go over there. I and the boy will worship, and I and the boy will come again to you. Hmm. That's how the actual Hebrew is set up. What is that telling us, friends? Abraham would not have started out on the road to Mount Moriah unless he believed that God was not only the creator, but also the recreator or the resurrector. His statement here is evidencing that he does believe that God can restore life to the dead. Amen. That's a very weak amen. amen. You know, and I don't normally fish for amens, folks, but seriously, if the resurrection of the dead is not true, we might as well all go home today, right now. Because Paul says your faith is in, it's in vain. Our faith is predicated on, its fundamental premise is that God himself is life and he can impart that life to you and me, even though we are already dead. So, this is why Abraham is mentioned twice in the faith chapter. Now, friends, where is that? Hebrews chapter 11. So, let's turn there. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and incidentally, of all the characters that are mentioned in the faith chapter, there are, there's only one person who's mentioned twice, and do you know who that is? Abraham, that's right. You will find it first in verse 8, where it talks about, by faith, Abraham was told to move. Okay? You know how old he was when he was moving? When he was asked to move, pack up, and go? Seventy. How many here are 70 years old or older? Okay, a few of you. Are you ready to move on a moment's notice? Okay, well, let's try the younger folks. How many of you could get up and go the minute God says go? Be honest. Okay, a few of you. All right, well, praise God for the few of us. Actually, I shouldn't be raising my hand because I can't even do that. If God told me to move right now, I will admit freely, I confess, I would not be able to do it. Why? 
I have too much stuff. (laughs) Now, if you're anything like me, which I think you probably are, you probably have a lot of stuff, too. Not only stuff, you have things that tie you down, hold you back. But at the age of 70, God told him, you need to go out and do some country living. Right? And so he did. He moved from L.A. to Loma Linda. (laughs) He did. He went to the land of Haran. So at 75, God had to come back to him and tell him, you need to keep going. So here in verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing what? Where Where he was going. Wow. How clueless can you be? Abraham was lost. And he was probably one of those guys that didn't pull over to ask for directions either, right? Seriously, did he know where he was going? No. But who told him to go? God. Do you realize that God has told each of us to go? We read that text earlier this morning. We used it to show how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have one name, right? What was the preface of that? What's the first word? Go, right? Go ye therefore. (gasps) Go. Is God really speaking to me? Is he telling me to go? Where am I supposed to go? Did he specify where? In other words, we all have been called to go. The question I have for all of us here today is, are we really going? So that's the first time you'll see his name mentioned. When's the second time? Do you see it? In verse 17. In verse 17, Abraham is mentioned the second time. And it says here, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, what did he do? Offered up Isaac. He went through the motions. He went all the way to the point of almost plunging the knife into his son. Now, how many of you are fathers here? Okay, I am one. I have two little children over there in the back corner. I don't think I could do that. I really don't have the faith that Abraham definitely had. Even in spite of the fact that you and I, we have the New Testament. We have the testimony of the apostles of how Jesus Christ came out of the tomb. And yet, if God told me to make this kind of a sacrifice, and I'm sure probably all of us are like that. But that's why our name is not found in Hebrews chapter 11. But Abraham's is. And it says here, by faith, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. That's another whole sermon there. How many sons did Isaac ha- or Abraham have? We know of at least two, and then he had a few more after. Did you know that? But in God's vernacular, in the Bible's vernacular, Isaac was his only son. Mm, that's pregnant with meaning. And it says here in verse 18, Of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offering, offspring be named. 
And here is the reason why Abraham is listed here in the faith chapter. It says, in verse 19, he considered. What did he do? He logically considered, he concluded in his mind, right? He understood. He considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receiving back, right? Why are we talking about faith here? And why are we talking about the faith of Abraham? Well, friends, the reason why Abraham was known as the friend of God is because of the relationship he had with God. Right? Okay, how, how can you have friends? You have friends, yes? Okay. Who's your closest friend? Just think in your mind. Why is that person your close friend? It's because more than likely you spend the most time with that person, isn't it not? So for those of you who are married, this should tell you your best friend should be your spouse, right? Your best friend should be your spouse because you should be spending the most time together. But the, you know, the weirdest thing is today in this day and age, uh, we have people that go to work and they have what they call a work spouse. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. Oh, we're not married. We don't have a physical relationship, but man, we just get along so well at the office. That person's my work spouse. You ever, ever heard of anyone talking like that? Oh yeah. No? Oh boy. Well, I have. Friends, it's because the world has gone so far from God's ideal that we are now spending more time with others and things when we should be spending more time with our own. We should be spending more time with God. We should be spending more time with our families. And yet, that's not what the world puts on us. Okay, so... Abraham was the friend of God because of the amount of time he spent with God. He's listed twice here in the faith chapter. It's a demonstration of the relationship that he had with God. Now, I want you to go back up to verse 3. Actually, let's just go ahead and read uh, verse 1. We're all familiar with that, right? Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good report. And I want to focus here on verse 3. By faith, what? We understand that the universe was, what? Created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What is that last phrase telling us? Created out of nothing. God made something out of nothing. Interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, they have verbs that they use where, where we translate make, create, etc. in the English language. The words that they use for God's creative act is different from the words, the verbs that they use what humans make. Did you catch what I was saying? 
I'm not going to give you the Hebrew, but go ahead and go home and look it up yourself. The Hebrew word that they use for making and creating in relationship to what God does is different than the words that are used for what man does. The reason being is this. Mankind, we make a nice computer. We make a nice podium. We weave a nice tie. We make a nice suit. We make nice shoes. But friends, what are we really doing? We're, we're changing something into something else. God takes nothing, absolutely nothing, and can make something out of it. Amen. And the thing is, in our English language, we say both acts are called make or create. But it doesn't do justice to the nuances that you'll find in the Hebrew. All right, so by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. Now, who's this we? Now, I like to believe that the author of the book of Hebrew is Paul, and we have Ellen White to back that up. But the author of Paul is saying, by faith we. Who's he speaking to? We? Is it just Christians? Granted, he's writing the book of Hebrews for his fellow brothers. But when we say we, couldn't that mean all of humankind? Isn't that we, right? In fact, I would submit that he is stating that the word we is inclusive of all of humanity, including Adam. Read it very carefully. Why? Let's put the word Adam there in the place of we. By faith... Adam understood that the universe was created by the Word of God. Is that okay? Why? Where was Adam when God said, let there be light? He wasn't there, right? Okay, let's, let's go back a, you know, a few days in the days of creation or go forward. Where was he when God said, let there be dry land. He wasn't there, right? What about when he said, let the earth bring forth all sorts of creepy crawly things? Where was he? Nowhere. In fact, Adam, next to his wife, was the last thing created during the week, right? Well, one of the last things. So in other words, everything else that was created was already there when he came on the scene. And so when he saw the sun, the stars, the ground, the animals, the trees, everything, and God said, hey, Adam, I made that. <laughs> what did Adam have to say? What could he say? I believe you. I believe you. What does it say here in verse 3? By faith, we all understand, all of humanity understands that the universe was created by the Word of God. Friends, I would submit to you that if we do not have this understanding, it is because we do not have the requisite faith. We've already talked about the faith that Abraham in sacrificing his son. We already talked about the faith that Abraham in venturing out to who knows where. And those kinds of faith you and I already confessed, I even freely admitted, would be very hard for me to do. 
But verse 3 talks about something on an entirely different level. Especially in the times that you and I live today. This faith is what is going to determine your relationship with Abba Father. Remember, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 5, he says, I and the boy will go over and we will what? Worship and we will come back, right? They were going there for the purposes of worship. We will be showing here very shortly that today the issue at hand is again the issue of worship. And the question is, who will you worship? It's not, will you worship? You will worship whether you want to or not. Okay? The question is, whom will you worship? And the prerequisite to be in the faith chapter, it's implied we need to worship the Creator God, Jehovah. So if we want to know how Jehovah created, which is the answer or the question we're going to seek to answer today, where do you suppose we're going to look? In the book of Genesis. That's absolutely right. Now, I wish I had the time to get into all the details of Genesis, but suffice it to say, let me put it this way. The first three chapters of Genesis is the thesis statement for the whole Bible. You will find everything from the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of Christian life, even the doctrine of eschatology. Eschatology, you familiar with that term? Study of end time events. You will find prophecy and eschatology in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You will even find a message about diet, dress reform. <laughs> what? I'm being serious. You'll be curious to know. Remember when, when Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what did they go do? They realized they were naked. And what did they go do? They decided to become seamstresses, right? And they took those leaves and weaved a little, little covering for them, right? And then Jesus comes and says, uh-uh-uh, you don't wear that kind of stuff around here. <laughs> right? Maybe he didn't say it that way, okay? But he, he clothed them later with, with animal skins. Where do you, pray tell, where do you get animal skins from? A dead animal. What kind of animal do you suppose died? Yeah, something that pointed to Jesus Christ. And if you go into the Hebrew there and look at the cognate of the words where it says, and, and God clothed them with the skins, and do a Strong's Concordance search on how often that particular cognate comes up, that verb, you will see that it's mostly associated with when Moses adorned Aaron as high priest. It's significant. All of that is found in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In fact, I would go so far as to say that all biblical understanding should be predicated on 
the truths that are in the first three chapters of Genesis. And if the theology or the religious belief does not conform to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, throw it out the window. Here's another interesting tidbit. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 describes a perfect environment with perfect people who are in perfect communion with a perfect God, right? The last two chapters of the Bible, what are they? Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22 also talks about a perfect environment with perfect people in perfect communion with a perfect God. You go one chapter over on both sides to Genesis 3 and Revelation 20, what do you have? You have the first war and the last war. Everything in between those two chapters, my friends, is what God is trying to do for your salvation. Amen. Isn't that an amazing sequence? Coincidence? They are the bookends of the Bible. But even Genesis chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, even chapter 20, we have to interpret it in light of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So who wrote the book of Genesis? Moses. Do you know nowadays scholars are actually scoffing at that idea? In fact, the, I think it's the first... 15 or 16 chapters they think was written by 10 different authors. Friends, we live in a time and age when things are beginning to erode and deteriorate. And it is in this time especially we need to stand firm though the heavens fall. So let's look at Genesis 1. 1 and 2. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was what? Without form and void. It's saying that the earth was, what are some other words for without form? Formless? Does that work? Okay, what about void? What's another word for void? Empty. Empty, okay, I like that. Do you know that most world religions today, some have form and some have filling? It's rare to find both. In fact, in 2 Timothy, I believe it was uh, 3.5, it says, people have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof this form and filling almost sounds kind of like a donut right <laughs> you need to have both form and filling for it to be the real thing okay I want you to keep this in mind and what we're going to do now is when we, we have all our Bibles turned to Genesis chapter 1 right Okay, we'll use this as an open book quiz for you Seventh-day Adventists, all right? What did God create on the first day? Come on. Light. Okay, 
So God created light on the first day, and God saw the light, and it was good. Okay. What did God create on the second day? Firmament. What's another word for firmament? Atmosphere. Okay, I like that. And God saw the atmosphere and thought, saw that it was? No. Read it very carefully, folks. This is an open book quiz. You just got 50%. Is there any phrase there where it says, God saw the firmament and the dividing of the waters and said it was good? No. Why do you suppose that is? But someone will say, but Jed, I protest. God says it was good seven times. Well, you know what? He does. But he doesn't say it for the second day. On the sixth day, he says it twice. You see? Why do you suppose God didn't say that day number two was good? Hmm? There are a lot of theories out there. There's a lot of scholastic debate about it. I think the one that convinces me the most is this. Anyone familiar with that Hebrew there? Mabul. This is the word selected by the Hebrew writer. I have to say that now in public. Do you believe that? This is the word selected by Moses. We're all Seventh-day Adventists here, right? We all believe that Moses wrote Genesis? Okay. This is the word selected by Moses in conjunction with the flood. Mabul. There are other words for flood. Nazal, Nahar, and there's probably about six others. Okay, I'm not going to go into all of them today. But the word Mabul is reserved exclusively for the deluge, for Noah's flood. It's only found in Genesis 6 through 11 and one time in Psalms 29 verse 10. And they're all in reference to Noah's flood. What this is telling us, friends, is that the Bible writer was very deliberate in choosing a specialized word to talk about the flood event. And in the rest of the Bible, whenever they talk about, oh, the Jordan River is flooding, they never use the word mabu. What this is emphasizing is that the flood was a singular event, a catastrophic event. And it is because of this, I believe, which some scholars submit, the reason for the destruction of the world the first time was because of what took place or what was created on the second day. Which is why God did not see all that he made on the second day and saw that it was good. I think that's very logical. Now, whether that's the truth or not, we, we'll have to study more and we'll, we'll learn when we get to heaven. So, first two days, light, atmosphere, what was created on day three? Okay, the answers are like dying down already by day three. Come on, friends. How many days of creation are there? There's seven days in a week, isn't there? Yeah? 
All right, we're going to cover that here in a bit. I'm just testing you guys because you call yourselves Seventh-day Adventists. You don't call yourself Six-days Adventists, right? Okay. What was created on day three? Land. Let me hear it all together now. What's the word? Dry land. But is that all? No, with land and vegetation. And God saw this and saw that it was good. Okay. Why do you suppose vegetation came up on day three? What was the purpose of making vegetation on the same day he made land? Okay, show his creative power. All right. That's not a wrong answer. You know what I find is the best answer is found in scriptures. Turn with me to Genesis 1, verse 29. In 129, God said, Behold, I give you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Why did God make vegetation on day three? To provide food for all the animals and human beings that would come afterwards. Imagine if he made all the animals and humans first, but no food. I don't know about you, but I get very cranky when I don't have food in my tummy. Well, they probably didn't either then because, you know, it was before sin, right? But does this show foresight? Yes. Okay. This vegetation was food for whom? Huh? Animals? And the humans. How do we know that? Well, if you go to the next verse, in verse 30, it says, And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, basically, everything that God created that moves around, right? He says, I have given every green plant for food, and so it was. This tells me that not only did God design humans to be vegetarian, He designed all the whole animal kingdom to be vegetarian as well. There's a very logical reason for this. We have some young people here. I think they're more on this side. So let me direct the questions to the younger crowd over there. In the front row there. You folks, you folk look intelligent enough to answer this. Where does beef come from? <laughs> She's laughing at me. Oh, you didn't think I knew that. Of course, a cow. Now, here's the next question. You ready for it? All right. What kind of a cow? A what? A female cow? What, they, they don't kill male cows for meat? Oh, okay, well, let's open it up to the adults. What kind of cow do you get? A dead one. A dead one. Ah. So if you wanted to have beef in the Garden of Eden, you would have to have what first? 
death. Is that what the Bible teaches, friends? No. So for all of you who are thinking that you'd get to heaven and sit down at the table, the great feast of the Supper of the Lamb, you know, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and think you were going to have a T-bone steak, I've got news for you. It's not going to be there. Why? There's no death. I told you the diet issues in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. How many are familiar with this bird? Okay, what is it, sir? Huh? A what? I could hear the parrot. Nandi parrot. Where is that indigenous to? South America. Okay, this is, this is definitely a parrot, but it's not from South America. So it was very close, very, very good. Does this look like a parrot to you? No, it looks pretty fierce, right? In fact, look at those talons, man. Whoa. This is known, my friends, as the Kia parrot. It is indigenous to New Zealand. Okay. And in New Zealand, this Kia parrot had a wonderful life because there was no human beings around. For a while, that is. Until humans started come o- coming over and decide, whoa, this is nice, beautiful country. I'm going to settle here. And not only did they bring themselves, they brought their sheep and their livestock and more people, more people. And that's what happened over there. Interesting thing is, this bird was almost destroyed to the point of extinction. Do you know why? Because they said what? Huh? No, not their feathers. It's because... Shepherds saw this bird tearing into the back end of their sheep just to get to the fat around the kidney. Now, how many of you would be absolutely surprised that this bird with its sharp claws and sharp beak was actually a vegetarian? What? Did that come from you, Angie? Oh, was it over here? My friends, this bird was a vegetarian until the people came and started destroying its habitat and the food it ate, which was plant material. And the reason it has sharp claws and beaks is so that it can dig in to the hard bark of some of the plant material that it eats, tools so that it can eat. But come winter, there's nothing left to eat. The, the humans have chopped down my house for firewood. And my only source of food is gone. I'm very hungry. Oh, wow, there's a woolly lamb there, and it looks like it's going to die. <laughs> well, I'm being serious. What these birds started to do was find dead sheep in the winter and started to eat them like carrion. Okay? Just to survive. And then what happened was they learned now they can land on a sheep while it's alive and still dig into it and eat it without the sheep really doing anything about it. So in other words, all animals that are meat eaters today are meat eaters out of necessity. It is because in Genesis chapter 3, 
How many things were cursed, by the way? Huh? The land was cursed, right? There was only two things cursed in Genesis chapter 3. It wasn't man and it wasn't woman. It was the land for man's snake and it was the snake. And it said the land is going to be cursed so that it will not bring up the food that it did as it did when it was created on day 3. So not only do humans have to till the soil to get their sustenance, the animals would have it harder as well. You know, deer, you normally presume to be vegetarian, right? Deer? Over in England, because of it's an island, you know, there's only so much space. It's, it's crowding, okay? These deer here, particularly the juvenile deers, when they start growing their antlers, you will find them on the seaside, I, I hate tongue twisters, sea, sea, <laughs> seaside cliff shores where they have a lot of shorebirds. And you know what they're doing there? They are eating the eggs, they're eating the chicken or chicklets or the little baby birds. Why? Because they're growing their antlers. But that's the only time they'll do that. They even have documented a sheep that tasted the blood of grouse. You know what a grouse is? Huh? What's a grouse? No, it's not a rodent. It's a bird. It's what, what did the Israelites cry out for? Um, quail. It's like a quail, okay? This sheep learned the taste of a grouse and learned how to hunt grouse. It's, it's documented. They have animals that are normally, typically vegetarian that go meat. You know, they have tigers and lions and ferocious cats, right, that are bred in captivity and they feed it an all-plant-based diet, you know what happens? Aggression, whoosh, straight down. In fact, just up the road here, not too far, there used to be a prison here. How many of you were familiar with Maranatha Prison? Okay, a few of you. You've heard of it. It's no longer there because I think the state figured, you know what, we're losing money on no-return criminals. But quite frankly, what they did there was they divided the prison population or the prison campus in half and the prisoner coming in had a choice. You can either go to this side and be fed standard California fare and have the standard California penal system treatment or, or you can come over on this side, we'll give you some nice perks like some free dental work and all this, but you have to be on a strict vegan diet, you have to attend chapel, you have to do all of this. Well, it kind of sorted out pretty 50-50. And you know what happened? This side, which had nothing to do with the standard junk food and the meat and all this stuff of the standard penal system here in California, there was a, a complete difference. Amen. A huge difference. Those of you who are in the educational fields, you know the effects of pop and, and junk food and those types of vending machines that they have in public schools, and now there's a movement to try to get those things out. Friends, what we eat actually makes an impact on your spiritual life. In fact, if you think about it, the first test that mankind had to endure was over what? Appetite. The first test that Christ had to endure in the wilderness was over so why are you and I thinking that appetite is not an issue for us anymore? 
Oh, I'm not going to say that out loud. <laughs> All right, so we have the first three days of creation, and the third day had vegetation because the vegetation was for the animals, the animals and humans. It was their food, right? Okay, so what happened on day four? That's right. Can we summarize that and call it heavenly bodies? Are you comfortable with that? Okay, sun, moon, and stars. What happened on day five? What did God create? All right, be more specific. Animals, but what kind of animals? Two kinds of animals. Okay, birds and fish, or fishes. Both are acceptable plural forms. What did God create on day six? Okay, but before then? Before then? Land animals, and then finally human beings. And all of this, God saw that it was good. God saw that it was. And God saw that it was good. And then when, and then when woman was formed, God saw that it was very good. Okay? Hey, 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 wait, women. It's not because that woman was created, okay? That's not why. It's because the... The image of God was fully reproduced in humanity when woman was formed. That plurality was finally now manifest in humanity. That's when God said, wow, this is very good. Now remember on the onset we said that the earth was what? Formless and empty. So what's the opposite of formless Forming something, right? Or formed, right? What about the opposite of empty? Fill. So let's look at the creation week in the context of filling or forming and filling. Okay? What was created on day one? Light. So in other words, the form of light was created on day one. On day four, God filled that form of light with... Heavenly bodies. On day two, God created the form of atmosphere. And then on day five, God filled the form of atmosphere with birds and fishes. Notice atmosphere that you and I walk in today is very much like the liquid that the fish are in. You know that? Air has weight. You know, there's air resistance. You and I, we're just so used to it, but it's just like talking to the fish. What's that stuff around you? What? <laughs> they're in the water. That's what they're used to. You take them out of the water and they freak out, right? So the atmosphere, the splitting of the two atmospheres, the atmospheric, air atmospheric, and the liquid atmospheric, they were both filled with animals. On day three, God created the form of? dry land or land and then he filled the land on day five with animals and humans do you see a pattern here or day six thank you very much there is a pattern here isn't there you know this formed and filled pattern that's not exclusive just to the week of creation what happened in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 it says the Lord God what formed the man from the dust of the ground and then he breathed. breathed. What's breathing into a man? 
It's filling him. It's just like pumping up a tire, right? God filled mankind with the breath of life. So when you look at this parallel again, formed, he formed from the dust of the ground, and then he did what? He filled with the breath of life. Now, is God creating according to some sort of a pattern? Do you see it so far? This is why, if you explain it from this term, from these terms, it makes more sense when you talk about the state of the dead. You know, in Ecclesiastes 12, 7, it says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit, or the breath, actually, shall return unto God who gave it. So, after the six days of creation, did God stop? Did he stop? No, he didn't stop. It says in Genesis 2, 1, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. But was that it? No. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. What, did, what happened after the sixth day? What happened after the sixth day? It says here, Seventh day. In other words, after the sixth day, there was a? Now, if, if for you to have a seventh day and God doing nothing, would we have a seventh day? No. no. In other words, God had to create the seventh day. Did he not? Yeah. Now, let me be honest with me. Does God get tired? <laughs> so, it says here after this, he had to what? Rest. He ceased, right. Friends, he had to make the seventh day because without it, creation would not be complete. We'll go on here. In verse 3 it says, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So we realize that the seventh day is... Blessed, it's sanctified, and God rested on it, right? Well, let me ask you this. I know that most of us here are Seventh-day Adventists, right? Where do we get our year from? Okay, it's the rotation of the earth around the sun. When you make one cycle around the sun, you call that a, a year. So, quite frankly, those of you who have been around the sun more than us, you're older than us. You've been in the sun too long. Okay? Where do we get our month from? Okay, it's the orbit of the moon around the earth. Not the sun, the earth. Okay? So, one revolution of the moon around the earth is our month. What is a day? The rotation of the earth on its own axis. Friends, tell me, where do we get a week from? Is there a natural phenomena to which we can ascribe to the seven-day week? Did you know that in human history they've tried to change that a few times? 
Most notably in the French Revolution, they went for a 10-day week. It didn't last very long. Something intrinsically, not only in human beings, but even in animals. There have been studies that show that there are some animals that see this seven-day cycle. Most notably, the Sabbath-keeping bee, but that, we're not here to talk about that. <laughs> no, I'm being serious. Go look it up. There are others. So, this seven-day cycle only exists because of what took place in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Which is why we are known as Seventh-day Adventists. All right? Now, let's review this in the context of how God, Jehovah God, created. Remember the form and fill? Let's do this really quickly now. We're very good at this, right? Day one, he created the form of light. And he filled it with heavenly bodies. Day two, he created the form of atmosphere. And he filled it on day five with birds and fish. On day three, he created the form of land. And he filled it on day six with animals and human beings then on day seven he created the form of the seventh day sabbath now what do you suppose he filled it with okay i heard blessings but i think i heard the answer over here what was it himself this is why the seventh day sabbath is crucial for your and my existence. Amen. In fact, I will submit that all people in heaven will be Sabbath keepers. Amen. The reason being is it is only the Sabbath wherein God himself, who is life itself, comes to commune with mankind in a memorial that's set in time, not a place, in time. Interestingly enough, and this only works in the English, when you look at the English word Sabbath, what do you find in the middle? The word Abba. Now granted in the Hebrew it doesn't work out like that, but it, again, I find it interesting that in Sabbath, you find the Father. Coincidence? You can draw your own conclusions. So why is all this important to me, though? Because, yeah, great, we realize how Jehovah God created, but so what? That's what the Bible says. Yeah, I believe it. Great, great, great. Now what? Well... Although the whole Bible deals with the great controversy as a general theme, there is especially one book that sheds immense light on this topic. And this is the book known as the book Revelation or the Apocalypse. It's an unfolding. It's the last book of the Bible written about and for God's people living in the last days. Are you living in the last days? Okay, I believe it. Particularly in the 13th and 14th chapter. You guys are familiar with the chiasm? Okay. So you know how it builds out from the end and it goes up to the middle, right? 13 and 14 are smack dab in the middle of Revelation. 
And do you know what? Here is where the climax takes place. There is a great controversy between God and the dragon. And in Revelation 13 and 14, you will find the word worship eight times. Now, if you found the word worship eight times in two chapters, I would think that the issue of worship would be important. Yes? Remember we talked about Abraham. He said, I'm going to go over with my son. And my son and I, we are going to worship. worship. And remember I said the Sabbath, the creation week, all of this is going to pertain to worship. And this is what we're going to be closing in on here. In, verse, in chapter 13, you will find the worship five times. And it's always in reference to worshiping the dragon. Incidentally, what is the dragon? Or who is the dragon is probably more accurate. So you're going to tell me that there are people who will be worshiping Satan? Oh, not me. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. Do you know there's a vision that Ellen White had where God the Father and God the Son were sitting on the table of showbread in the holy place? And God the Father and God the Son moved over to the most holy place. But in front of the table of showbread were lots of worshipers who were worshiping. And when God the Father and God the Son went into the holy place... There was a few that went along with them, but the rest of them stayed there, and guess who came in the place of God? Satan. This is telling you and me that it doesn't matter what denomination you've been baptized into, you have the distinct possibility of worshiping the wrong deity. You and I could be worshiping the dragon unbeknownst to us. Five times in Revelation chapter 13, there's talk about worshiping the dragon, the beast, or the image of the beast. What is an image? Another word for image. Okay, an idol. Do you know that in the Old Testament, the number one thing that God gives warning about, warning after warning after warning about, do you know what it is? Idolatry. Why? It is because the issue of worship is essential in both the religious and spiritual life. We need to realize the object of our worship because human beings are designed to worship. And there was a, an angel who was almost, almost there at the, at the level of God. He was in the throne room himself. <coughs> he was constantly exposed to the glories and the grandeur and the holiness of the Godhead. And yet pride was found in him. And when he came, or when he was cast down to earth, and Jesus Christ came as a human being, there in the wilderness, what did Satan crave most from Jesus? Worship. Satan always wants worship because he wants to be like God. 
So five times in Revelation 13, we have idolatry, worship. Three times in Revelation 14, we have the word worship. Two of those times, it's again in conjunction with the dragon, the beast, and the image of the beast. Only one time out of those eight is a call, a clarion call to worship the Creator God. And you know where you find that? That's right. You find that smack in the forefront of the three angels' message. Now, notice I said message, singular, right? That's a whole other topic. Why I believe actually the three angels' messages are really essentially one message. And it is actually the message of righteousness by faith. But that's another topic. We'll do that some other time if you're willing. So the first angel's message is given in Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, where he said, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And what? Worship, Worship him who did what? Made. Who made heaven, earth, sea, and springs of water. Last time I counted, there were 404 verses in the book of Revelation. What's half of 404? 202, okay. 202. Did you know that over 270 verses in the book of Revelation reference directly or indirectly something from the Old Testament? Scholars will tell you that this is the longest verbatim quotation from the Old Testament that's found in the book of Revelation. And friends, do you know where it's quoting from? Huh? The fourth commandment. Very good. Which commandment is the fourth commandment about? The Sabbath. the Sabbath. What does it say there? In fact, who wrote the Ten Commandments? God did, right? With his own fingers. It says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. And then it gives the reason for this in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them. Notice how this is similar to what John the Revelator is quoting. You have the four elements there, do you not? You have made, right? You have heavens, you have earth, and you have sea. That's what it says in Revelation chapter 14, doesn't it? Isn't it? Worship him who made heavens, earth, the sea. And then the last element is different. I'm not going to get into that today, but uh, those of you who are at GYC, David Asterix did a presentation on this, and he... He presents a very compelling case as to why the fourth was, or the last element was changed. But let's continue. And it says that God rested the seventh day, therefore the Lord, or who here actually, folks? Yahweh, Yahweh or Jehovah, blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. If Jesus was the creator God who created the seventh-day Sabbath, who was the one who became man and who kept the seventh-day Sabbath while he was here on earth, why are you and I 
fighting about which day to keep. Especially if all of us claim that we are Christians. A Christian, by definition, is one who follows Christ. We learned earlier today that Jehovah, Jehovah Jesus, was the one who was there in creation, right? John chapter 1, 1 through 4 and 14, right? And if this Jehovah Jesus was the one who created the seventh day, and then he came on earth and he kept it, shouldn't you and me? There's a very interesting thing that you will find in the Gospels. You will find many different statements of the Passover, uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles. You will find these phrases, and particularly John, he will say the Jewish feast, the Jewish Passover. Never once will you find the word Sabbath associated with the word Jewish. In fact, here in Mark 2.27, it says, the Sabbath was made for the Jew. Right? No. In the Greek, you know what this word man is? Anthropos. Where we get our word anthropology. In other words, the Sabbath was made for all of mankind. And incidentally, it is only the Sabbath and the institution of marriage that mankind was witness to in the week of creation. Isn't that significant? And yet those are the two fundamental things that Satan is constantly attacking in this last days. Friends, we are living in a great controversy. I hope you have seen why it is important for us to understand how it is that Jehovah created and what that relevance is to me. The last end time message that this church has is one about worship. Who are you going to worship? Are you going to worship him who made heaven, earth, the sea, and the springs of water? Or are you going to worship an idol? That is the question for you and me today. Worship him who made heaven and earth. Friends, how do you better become, uh, how do you become better acquainted with your creator God? That's right. You spend time with him, particularly in his word. Friends, this is the best form of worship you can give. In fact, I'm going to leave you with this. The word worship comes from an old English. You know, uh, during the feudal days when property owners were the rulers of their own land, and if you didn't own the property, you were either a serf or a servant or you're a squatter or whatever on the land. And anytime the landowner would ride by on his, you know, magnificent steed, you as the non-landowner would, you know, tip your hat or bow slightly and say, your worthyship, your worthyship. This is where the word worship comes from. When you acknowledge that someone was worthy, what you were doing was saying they are worth your time and energy. Amen. When you worship, you are stating that it's worth your time and energy. So friends, let me ask you, 
Does worship only take place between 9.30 to 12 o'clock on Sabbath? No. It actually takes place what? 24-7. Your whole lifestyle should be a lifestyle of worship. Because what you do every moment of your life determines and demonstrates what you consider important. Now, how many of us, I'm not asking you to raise your hand, spend more time on the phone talking to our family and friends more than we talk to our Heavenly Father on our knees? How many of us spend more time flipping through the channels of the cable TV or even through the pages of the internet more than we flip through the pages of God's Word? What are you showing in your life as important? What are you demonstrating is worthyship for you? The Bible calls us to worship the Creator God. Isn't it about time we all became better acquainted with Him? Amen. Let us pray. Our Father God, thank You so much for being the Jehovah who creates. Not only You, but the Son and the Holy Spirit, all of You were involved in the creation of this world. We learned how all humankind must have faith to believe that the world was created by your word. None of us was there, not even Adam. But Father, we trust your word. We believe what you have written for us. Help us to not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Father, forgive us for our laziness. Forgive us for the times where we've demonstrated to you and to others that you aren't important to us. I ask that you take our hearts today and renew them. Create in us the desire, the hunger, the thirst, the longing after your kingdom and your righteousness. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.